Well, as you can see, today we are launching a new series of messages we are calling You Ask For It. During our Easter service at the Ford Center, we invited people to text the one question they would most like to have answered by God, and this resulted in over 300 questions that a team of our pastors analyzed and synthesized for over two hours this past Monday morning. And here are the four questions that were asked most often in one way or another. First question, what does God think about sex? And yours truly drew the short straw on that one. <laughs> Next week, what's the big deal about homosexuality? Now this question was one that surfaced in one way or another over 40 times. Then thirdly, why does a good God allow suffering? That's rather predictable and it's a very important topic that we'll be addressing in the third weekend. And then fourth and last, how can I be sure I am saved? So that's our lineup beginning this week and continuing for the next three weeks. Now, if your question did not make the top four, just stay tuned. For instance, several people asked questions about the afterlife, about heaven and hell, and we had already planned for these two uh, topics to be addressed the last two weekends in the month of June this summer. And the only subject that got more than two or three submissions other than these is one that had to do with the origin of dinosaurs, and we'll deal with that, but uh, just not for a little while. Well, you'll notice that on these first two weekends, we're dealing with the for mature audiences only questions. But hey, folks, you are the ones that determine the agenda, not me. I do assure you that for the next two weeks, everything you hear will be biblical, and it will be explained and applied on a PG or maybe an occasional PG-13 level. All I can say is there's nothing like diving into the deep end of the pool, so let's do it. What does God think about sex? Well, the short answer to that is He thinks it's good. In fact, He thinks it's very good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, after He created male and female, after He created male and female, it says God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. Before that, after each day of creation, it simply says God saw that it was good. But after creating man, Adam, and woman, Eve, as distinct sexual beings to complete each other, only then did it say it is very good. However, several spin-off questions were submitted by the Easter crowd that I'm going to try to answer here in rapid sequence with some short answers. Here are the ten questions that related to this single issue. Let me just take them one at a time and give you a short answer. Number one, I'm in a relationship with a man who says he loves me. He doesn't want to get married, but he still wants to have sex. What do I do? Short answer, throw the bum out. Number two. <laughs> Number two question, is dating an atheist a good idea? Short answer, no. You had better dance him, dance her 
loose. Number three, is interracial marriage wrong? No. There are examples of interracial marriage in Scripture, but marrying an unbeliever is disobedient. Question four, what's the right age to get married? I had to look this up. <laughs> Did you know that 16 is the age of consent in Kentucky and Indiana? I didn't know that. But I would suggest that you check with your parents on that one. <laughs> Number five, I have committed adultery and fallen in love with the other man. Now what? Well, you're already half there. You have admitted your adultery. Now the hard part, forsake your fantasy before it's too late. Number six, will God forgive me if I have premarital sex? Now, the way that question is phrased makes me sound like somebody's got a plan. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes people have the idea, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and sin in this way or that way, and then I'll repent, and it's God's job to forgive me. See, the problem with that is when you plan your disobedience and with the idea that you can always repent. You see, it's difficult to conjure up a sincerity of heart when you repent, if you've planned the sin and plan to repent. So answer to question number six, it depends on the condition of your heart. Number seven, why is there so much sexual exploitation of children today? Short answer, we are living in a very fallen world in this generation. Number eight, is it okay to live with a significant other to save money? Short answer, no. You have to answer, what's more important to you, your money or your morality? Your cash or your character? Number nine, why doesn't the church speak out more about modesty and in dress? Well. We are going to teach the Bible and apply the Bible and hold up the standards of modesty in God's Word, but we're not into nagging. Number 10, last, certainly not least, where do babies come from? <laughs> I'm going to leave it up to you parents to handle that one. I already paid my dues. I did hear about an eight-year-old who went to his father to ask, Dad, what is sex? And the father was surprised that out of the blue he would ask such a question, but he decided if his son was old enough to ask the question, he was old enough to get a straight answer, so he proceeded to tell his son all about the birds and the bees. And when he finished, the boy was looking at his father with his eyes bugged out and his mouth hanging open. And the father asked, why did you ask me that question anyway? And the little boy replied, Mom just told me to tell you that dinner would be ready in a couple of sacks. <laughs> okay, now back to our question for this week. What does God think about sex. You know, originally, I didn't like the way this question read. It almost sounds like this subject is merely a matter of opinion, like, like God's thoughts 
are weighted the same as yours or mine or Hugh Hefner's or Larry Flint's. But in the end, what God thinks about it is all that really matters because He spoke the universe into being. He designed it. He is the one who holds it all together. So what He says goes. If morality has its origin in the goodness of God and we are His special creation, then His will is sovereign. His Word is authoritative. Of course, if your worldview is that the universe generated itself from vast, limitless nothingness, that it randomly ordered itself, that it naturally sustains itself, then you're going to assume that we human beings, we're on our own to determine right and wrong, moral and immoral. And what it comes down to is Darwin's survival of the fittest. You just do whatever feels good. You just do whatever you think you can get away with without any ultimate accountability to a holy Creator God. Well, obviously, I don't take Darwin's law of the jungle seriously. I opt for a different destiny, and that is for us to honor God and to reflect His character. So if you'll join me in this higher purpose for living, I want us to discover the mind of our Creator and our Father when it comes to sexuality. And what He thinks is clearly revealed in His Word, and here's what we find. First of all, that sex is God's gift, and He wants us to value it. Genesis 1, God created man in His own image, male and female. He created them. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib He had taken out of the man. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There's something about us, how we were created, that's godlike, that elevates us over and above other creatures. And there's something in us that desires to know our Creator. It can, be, it can be pressed down, it can be repressed, or it can be given expression. And there's also something in most all of us that craves an intimate relationship with another person of the opposite sex. We just read it. Male and female, He created them. And there are very distinct, innate differences between men and women that are obvious, the physical ones, and then there are others that are less obvious. Somebody's composed a partial list of the differences between men and women. One is the use of the remote control. Men like to watch several stations at once. Women want to watch one program at a time. I guarantee you, picture in picture, it was not invented by a woman. Then also the difference between men and women is the length of time it takes a woman to get ready to go out versus men who just basically grab the car keys and go. Uh, shopping is another difference between men and women. For women, it's fun. For men, it is inhumane torture. How we, how we, determine, how we determine if clothes are dirty. Here's another difference between men and women. <laughs> women on the basis of sight men on the basis of smell. And men get their esteem from achievement, women get their esteem from relationships. And women will stop for animals in the road 
Most men won't. Men will stop for a flat tire. Most women won't. You know, here's another difference. Men never wear other men's clothes or, or invite other men to go with them to the restroom. And you never see a woman cleaning her ear with a car key. So, these are the differences between men and women. We really are different. And the words male and female are distinct words that are sexual in nature. They show that sexuality was a part of the original creative work of God. His first words to Adam and Eve were, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And sexual intimacy between the first couple was a part of creation from the beginning. A husband and wife becoming one flesh, that's God's idea. It is His will. And undoubtedly, the best sex in time and space was experienced by Adam and Eve before the fall. Before sin entered the picture, it was as God meant for it to be. It says in Genesis, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They're completely open with each other. There's no deception, no manipulation. The relationship is not burdened by sexual regret or selfish motives. And the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned was they realized they were both naked and they hid themselves. The first consequence of their sin was guilt and shame in the relationship between the man and the woman. Intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, it was disrupted. It was the first casualty of sin. They hid themselves both physically and spiritually from each other and from God. Now, why would Satan's initial attack on humanity affect human sexuality first? I think it's because he's very sinister. He knew where to hit mankind to do the most damage. You see, friends, listen, Satan is the one who is anti-sex not God. God created it to be very good. But Satan has disrupted it. He has distorted it. He has perverted it. He has hijacked it. And listen, the true church is not repressive where sexuality is concerned, but we stand with the Creator against sexual sin the abuses and the excesses, the perversions and the distortions and the preoccupations with sex that cause the loss of intimacy with God and the loss of intimacy with your life mate. So what are these distortions of God's best for us sexually? Well, the Bible speaks about four expressions of sex outside of marriage and it repeatedly condemns them. Here they are. First of all, sex with an unmarried person of the opposite gender. Words, biblical words like fornication, prostitution, incest. These are words that you don't like to hear in church, and neither do I. Today, sex outside of marriage is softened. It is trivialized. It's called 
sleeping with someone. That's so benign. It's called fooling around. That's so superficial. It's called hooking up. That's so casual. But, you know, even though we soften it and trivialize it, it doesn't change the fact that in reality it is still sin. It is. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Second distortion of sex is sex with a married person who is not your spouse. And the biblical word is adultery. Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The third distortion is sex with a person of the same gender, biblical word homosexuality. And since we're devoting next weekend to that topic, I'm just going to touch on it with this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. And then fourthly, there's sex with animals, the biblical word bestiality, couple of references to that. Let's move on. I do want to drag two expressions of sexual sin out of the shadows this morning. I want to grab them by the hair of their head and drag them out of the shadows into the bright light of God's truth today. They are these two, premarital sex and cohabitation. Friends, listen. God is good. And like any good father, he wants only the best for his children. And because He loves us, He's created the gift of sex for a high and holy purpose. And it's simply ingratitude. It's ingratitude to God to selfishly exploit or carelessly abuse this very special gift. But it's happening today like never before. Let me talk about premarital sex. Teen and college-age sexual activity has spiked in our generation. And the physical problems associated with it are pretty well known. Sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancy, wholesale abortion, long-term poverty. But less widely known are the psychological and emotional problems that come with it. Teens who are sexually active are much less likely to be happy, much more likely to be, be, be depressed, significantly more likely to attempt suicide. Now, young people, you need to hear this. Your peers and the media portray sexual activity as mature, as harmless, as exciting, as fun. And waiting, waiting for marriage, for sex, it's outdated. It'll make you unhappy when just the opposite is true. But, folks, I could stand up here this morning and trot out surveys and statistics until the cows come home. And everybody thinks they're the exception. 
But here's what I know is true. It is a simple matter of obedience. Do you know better? Or does God know better? Do you trust yourself? Or do you trust the goodness of God? Let me ask you this. Does the lordship of Jesus matter? Does being a disciple of Jesus make any difference in the way you live your life? Or not? Let me talk about cohabitation. This is the practice of living together with a sexual partner without marriage. It's as old as the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But it has so many long-term negative effects. Eighty-four percent of cohabiting couples split up before or after marriage. Women are 62 percent more likely to be assaulted by a live-in boyfriend than by a husband. Cohabiting women have depression rates three times higher than married women. If a couple abstains from sex before marriage, they're much more likely to be fulfilled after marriage. And when people come to us and they want us to bless their union, it's one of the reasons why we hold the standard, because we truly care about them and we want them to experience God's best. And a single adult who believes society's idea that living together is a good way to prepare for marriage, that person has bought the lie. And here again, every, everyone thinks they're the exception. But folks, all the research and all the percentages, they're beside the point. The fact is, to cohabit is to live in sin. And for some, that's all they need to know. And once they understand that, they are willing to get out of it. But others know it's wrong, and they don't care. In effect... They thumb their nose at the Heavenly Father who only wants His best for them. They're going to do what feels good, what feels right to them in the moment and disregard the consequences. They're going to go with what the culture tries to brainwash all of us to think. Cohabitation is just the next step in the relationship. And what God has said in His Word is passé. But here's the bottom line, 1 Corinthians 6.13. Look at the second-person pronouns in this passage. Personalize this, can you, this morning? Your body. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord, for your body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise you also. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Sex is God's gift, and He wants us to value it. Sex also has a spiritual purpose, and He wants us to fulfill it. 
The Marriage Act, as it's called, has three specific, very God-honoring purposes, and these are, number one, union, number two, procreation, number three, recreation, all in the context of the marriage bond. First of all, union. It says, for this cause a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. This is the God-ordained institution of marriage. Marriage is an announcement to the community that you're starting a new chapter in your life. You're beginning a home of your own. Your relationship with the other person will be exclusive. You will keep yourself for him or for her as long as you both shall live. You're bonding yourself to this person for life. It is exclusive, and the two becoming one flesh is a physical union. It is the act of intimacy that fuses two people together as one flesh. And the physical unity between a husband and wife is intended by God to create a bonding of soul to soul at the deepest level. See, the world says sexual intimacy first, maybe, maybe commitment after. God has said commitment first sexual intimacy after. And the beef I have with a lot of sex education today is not that kids are being told too much. They're being told too little. There should be an emphasis on how intensely spiritual sex is. When you have sex with another person, you are fusing soul to soul. And if the relationship breaks off casually, you wind off, you wind up tearing off a piece of yourself and leaving it behind. Well, it's also for procreation, not only union, but procreation. God designed sex for the miraculous, mysterious creation of new life. It doesn't happen any other way. And this is one of the reasons that it requires a male and female. So there'll be a mommy and a daddy. God loves little children. He intends for them to grow up with the provision and the protection of loving parents. Listen, if you participate in the conception of a child, you have partnered with God to create a living soul, whether you realize it or not. And your most important responsibility in life is to love them and teach them as best you can by word and example to know the Lord and love the Lord. And it's impossible for me to overstate the importance of forging a strong partnership between your family and your church. So, union, procreation, and the final purpose of sex in the context of marriage is recreation or recreation. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So, the taste of good food and the beauty of the sunrises and sunsets and the gift of laughter and this, the joy of pets, and the changing seasons, all His good gifts, and there are many, many more. And marital sex is one of His most enjoyable gifts. The Song of Solomon in the Old Testament is written to express the joy of the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. Genesis chapter 26 in the King James Version, it says that Isaac was sporting with his wife, Rebekah. He was being physically affectionate with her. And where there's no embracing or there's no touching in marriage, it can create distance 
Sex is for enjoyment, but only in the context of committed love, in the bond of marriage. God created sex for two basic reasons. Number one, to motivate people to get married. And before marriage, we dream about how wonderful it will be to have physical intimacy with your husband or wife without guilt or shame. And the second purpose is to motivate people to stay married. You know, after the wedding, you learn that married life is a little more challenging than we expected. And remember, even great marriages have some hard days, but, but physical desire draws a husband and wife back together again. Well, finally this morning, what God thinks about sex, sexual sin, can be overcome. And He wants to forgive it. King David in the Old Testament was described as a man after God's own heart. He had a moment of weakness. He lusted after another man's wife. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. But when the prophet came to him and confronted him with his sin, David was broken. He was humble, and he was shown grace. The prophet said, there will be consequences to your sin, but God has forgiven and restored you because of your sincere repentance. Then, then Jesus said to a humiliated woman caught in the act of adultery on one occasion, I don't condemn you. But go and sin no more. So forgiveness depends on two things. Forgiveness depends on being genuinely sorry for our sin, like David, and making a commitment to change, like the adulterous woman. I would like for this not to be like just another service on a weekend at Crossroads. All of us in this room are either married or we're unmarried. If you're unmarried here this morning, if you're unmarried, I want to challenge you today to make a heart commitment, a vow to God and to yourself that you will be pure from this day on in mind and body. Somebody says, I've already blown it. Hey, forget that. You don't have a past as far as God is concerned. You've got a present and you got a future. I'm talking about starting from today. And the value of preaching is not what you remember about the sermon. It's what happens in your head and heart while you hear the Word of God. And I, I want to challenge you, if you're unmarried here this morning, to make this commitment to purity, to swim upstream, to stand against the tide, to march to the beat of a different drum, can I be transparent? I made this decision in my early teens, and I do not know of any single decision that I have made that has had more to do with the joy and fulfillment that I have had throughout my life. If you're here this morning and you're unmarried, you will never be sorry if you commit to purity in mind and body. And then the rest of us who are married, Will you make a commitment today? Will you vow before God and to yourself that you will be faithful to your marriage vow? You were a truth teller on your wedding day that you will keep yourself only for her, for him, as long as you both shall live. Renew your commitment to purity.
and faithfulness in your marriage. Would you stand on your feet, please, and pray with me? Father, this morning, we believe that some things can be settled in heads and hearts that will make such a difference in the future direction of the lives of your people. Thank you for defining the standard for us, Lord. There is, there is no fuzziness about your word with respect to this sin. And this kind of sin just takes us to places we never wanted to go. It, it costs us more than we ever expected to have to pay. I pray, Lord, that this morning for every married or unmarried person in this assembly, that there would be resolve, that there would be determination, that there would be conviction. Lord, help us to stand straight and tall, no matter what everybody else is doing or anybody else is doing. Lord, we don't, we don't care what Hollywood thinks about sex. We don't care what the Supreme Court decides about sex. We look to your word. We know you are the author of life. You know what you tell us there is in our best interest always. So we embrace it this morning and we commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Kay Arthur is a name you might recognize. Kay Arthur is a Bible teacher who's blessed thousands of women, and she relates in her personal testimony that when she was in her 20s, she had a series of affairs, and she went through a divorce, and she lived for two years with a man to whom she was not married. But at age 30, Kay Arthur accepted Jesus as her Savior and Lord of her life. She received His forgiveness, and God has used her mightily ever since. And I think that could probably be the story of someone or someone's in this room today. If you're here and you do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, and we want to call you to Him today. We want you to experience cleansing. We want you to experience the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I don't know that I can live the kind of life that you described here this morning. Well, that's because you don't have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal body also if you're a Christian. And so this morning... If you have a decision to make, it doesn't have to be related to this message this morning at all. If you come, we're not going to automatically think that this morning. If you're ready to receive Jesus, regardless of what's in your personal history, we want to invite you to come. If you have a decision to make about Crossroads, we'll be here at the front to meet you during this last worship song.